This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and our theme is The Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of Life. When we think of the Reformed and Presbyterian confessions, we might think first of the doctrines of grace and salvation, but they reflect on much more than that, including the person and work of the Holy Spirit. To be sure, they do so in ways that are distinct from the ways with which modern evangelicals have become familiar. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He teaches our course on the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, and I I teach our course on the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. And he joins us to discuss the teaching of the Reformed Confessions on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. John is author of several books, including Theology of the Westminster Standards, Historical Context, and Theological Insights. This title is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. It's good to be here with you. What was the background against which the Reformed and Presbyterian churches confessed their understanding of the Spirit's person and work? And I'm thinking here, for example, of the Anabaptists, and then we can maybe talk about Rome, antinomianism, there were spiritualist sects, and then later the uh, Socinians and the Arminians. So we've run the gamut from the 1520s well into the 17th century. Sure. I think the first thing that I would want to say is that uh, Reformers, whether we're talking in the 16th century or later, say the Westminster Divines in the 17th century, they were fully Trinitarian, which means that they affirmed the uh, historic ecumenical creeds and councils, which means that everything that the historic church has said about the person work of the Spirit is everything that they would have agreed with, so that they would have affirmed the full and complete deity of the Holy Spirit, as well as all of the traditional historic classic teachings about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So that, I think, is the first big thing to make note of is their Catholicity and Catholic with a small c. In other words, that they are agreeing with the teaching of the historic Christian faith, you know, since the very beginning. That then if we want to talk about some of these different theological groups that you mentioned, say the first one I think is the Anabaptists, is that they were something of a splintered lot. They had a number of different opinions and beliefs and what have you. And among some of them, they wanted to cast off scripture and they believed that, hey, we just need the spirit. And I think in one sense kind of cast off all kinds of ecclesiastical restraint. And so they eschewed the word and were more interested in uh, kind of a mysticism, basically. We're familiar in our age with people saying, well, I received a word from the Lord, and I've been in the presence of people who have recounted a given prophecy for which they had a name and a date. I remember standing next to some people who were talking about such and such a prophecy from such and such a time and and date. It was very odd because they clearly knew between them Mm -hmm. what was contained in this thing, and they regarded it as having come from the Holy Spirit. And here I was, a Christian, Mm -hmm. to the best of my knowledge and the best of the knowledge of my consistory, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So we think of that as sort of a modern phenomenon. But in fact, it isn't really modern at all, is it? No, the Anabaptists were doing it in the 1520s, and they made fun of the Reformed. They mocked the Reformed as being ministers of the dead letter. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. And you could even make an argument that uh, it goes back to Montanus back in the days of Tertullian in the third century, claiming that he was now the paraclete, the long expected Holy Spirit. So yeah, it's always been with us. So that's certainly, I think, one element. You know, if we were to switch gears a little bit and discuss, say, the Roman Catholics, you know, the Roman Catholics would affirm, for example, the inspiration of the scriptures. And with them, we would agree on that principle. But where they, I think, in a sense, box up the spirit is that they claimed the exclusive exclusive right to teaching authoritatively the Word of God. So they claim to have exclusive license, if you will, to the Holy Spirit because only they, the magisterium, could officially declare and interpret what the Word of God had to say. And against this backdrop, we could say at least the broader Protestant teaching that I think originated with Luther with the priesthood of all believers is the idea that the Holy Spirit and the scriptures are not restricted to one specific limited class such as the magisterium within the church, but rather it's democratically available, if you will, to anyone who picks up the scriptures to read them. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, that just because I invoke the word democratic, that all of a sudden there's not a complete flattening out of the work of the Holy Spirit so that anybody can preach the word of God. They still recognize the importance of offices and especially those of the minister and the elders and the deacons, but in particular ministers as the one who is supposed to herald the authoritative proclamation of the gospel, but uh, they didn't box up the interpretation of the scriptures to the teaching class, if you will, or to the magisterium alone. Isn't it the case that where the Anabaptists, as it were, cut the Holy Spirit loose from Scripture, Rome sort of, as you say, boxed up the Holy Spirit so within the visible church as to make the visible institutional church inspired Mm -hmm. and co-authoritative and even more authoritative Mm -hmm. than Holy Scripture. Yeah, I think, you know, we could build off of what you just said, which is if the Anabaptists pulled the Spirit away from the Scriptures, the Roman Catholics pulled the Scriptures away from the Holy Spirit and moved it to the Church. You know, kind of, in one sense, uh, two opposite poles on this continuum of extremes. But both have, ironically, I guess, continuing revelation. Yes, yeah. So Romanists, right, Roman Catholic Christians are looking to the Church and particularly to the Holy See in Rome and to councils for ongoing, continuing revelation, Mm -hmm. just like, in a way, uh, modern Pentecostals and the old Anabaptists, and as you say, before them, the Montanists were looking for continuing revelation. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a good way to characterize it, yeah. So we, confessional Reformed folk, are confessing sola scriptura, that is, the scriptures are the sole authoritative revelation from the Holy Spirit to which the church is subordinate. Mm -hmm. We read the scriptures together, but we expect the spirit to work through the word. Correct. I think that that's important. I mean, I think that at least in the context today of, say, contemporary Pentecostalism or something, confessional Reformed folks get a bad rap for not being about the Holy Spirit. But yet it's like if we pay close attention to what our creeds and confessions say, particularly either the three forms of unity or the Westminster standards, they are replete with references to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes these days, I don't know what to call it, but to say that we suffer from table of contents, amnesia, or ignorance. I'm not sure exactly how to label it, but it's the idea that if we don't see a chapter specifically 
specifically on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit indicated in the table of contents, then people just assume, oh, it must not be there. And especially when we compare that with, say, some of the contemporary systematic theologies that have come out in recent years, there'll be separate chapters on the Holy Spirit. And just because you don't find a chapter on it doesn't mean that the doctrine's not there. And it's all over the place. And I think one of the first places that, you know, we could point or draw attention to, seeing that we're talking about revelation and the relationship between revelation and the Spirit is the doctrine of Scripture, as you say. It's such a vital category. Yes, we believe in sola scriptura, Scripture alone, but that doesn't mean that we are somehow rationalists because we make reason the supreme arbiter in all things theological, but rather it's word and revelation working together in concert so that the Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to the lives of the people in the church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what we're really talking about here, isn't it, are paradigmatic differences. And by that, I mean, just plainly, it's like accusing a Chevy of not being a Ford. Sure. Yeah. Right. There are two different paradigms. Now, the question is, you know, which is better? And that's a debate we can have. Sure. We can't criticize the one for not being the other. Correct. All right. Some of the issues that the Reformed were facing in the 16th and particularly in the 17th centuries involved sanctification. And the Reformed developed a high doctrine of sanctification in response to, for example, the antinomians Mm -hmm. who said what, John? Antinomians, and there were a number of different flavors of antinomians, but generally speaking, that they believed that because of the grace of God that came in the gospel, that the converted sinner was unbound in every respect to the moral law, that the moral law had basically no claim in any way upon the believer. And then another element of at least historic antinomianism is the idea that God in no way saw any sin in any sense in his people because of the redemption that came through Christ. So not just in the justification. We could say that in justification, God does not see our sins, but they were saying that in his general providence, Mm -hmm. in no sense did God see our sins. Correct, yes. I mean, so basically the idea was that people could continue sinning if they wanted to because in the end God didn't recognize it as such or they were already forgiven in advance for any sins that they might commit. So to borrow Paul's phrase, they decided to sin so that grace might abound. And of course, Paul says, by no means is that what we're supposed to do, but that was their erroneous position. Now, if we take that into account, what about the Holy Spirit? And in particular, what about the Word of God? I think that as you've pointed out, I think we have a classically robust understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, which says that in the process of sanctification, our ongoing conformity to the image of Christ, this is where word and sacrament applied by the Spirit plays a significant role. In fact, I would say the chief role in our doctrine of sanctification. The Shorter Catechism, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 29 says, How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And it answers, uh, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. Or, again, the Shorter Catechism in question 89, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So, in other words, somebody who who adheres to biblical and confessional teaching will want not to eschew the preaching of the word or won't write it off, but rather will constantly be under it because this is the means by which God has appointed to conform sinners 
furthermore to Christ's image. And it's by the work and power of the Holy Spirit that he applies the word to us. So in that sense, apart from the Holy Spirit, there's not only going to be an absence of an effectual call, which means we can't believe in the gospel, but in terms of the ongoing Christian life, we will make no progress in our greater sanctification or conformity to Christ. So one of the differences between the Reformed understanding of the operation of the Spirit is that we see him operating through the Word, particularly through the gospel preached and through the preaching of the law, and also through the holy sacraments. So we see him working through means, Mm -hmm. whereas there were lots of groups in the 16th and 17th centuries and lots of groups today who see the Holy Spirit working principally, individually, privately, and directly. Mm -hmm. So can we say that one of the differences is between the use of media Mm -hmm. means Mm -hmm. and the immediate Mm -hmm. work of the Spirit. Yeah, I think so. I think in that respect, to pick up a little bit earlier on what we were discussing just moments ago, is the idea, say, in a Pentecostal or Anabaptist or early Montanist kind of understanding of things, people would claim to have unique revelation from God, you know, through the Spirit. Okay, so then you can imagine that there then becomes a class of the haves and the have-nots in the church. I'm better than you are because I've received this special word from God and you haven't. Or people then begin to seek out these people, these individuals who have received these special words because they want a special message tailored for them. I want you to tell me what I need to do in situation X or whatever the case may be. But yet if the Spirit works through means, and particularly the Word and sacrament, then that means that there's a sense in which we're all on an even playing field, and God does speak to us, and I like to tell my students in church, even audibly through the reading, the audible reading of the Word, and through the preaching of the Word of God. And in fact, that's one of my favorite phrases from the Westminster Standards in uh, chapter 1, paragraph 10, when it talks about the supreme judge in all controversies of religion. It can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture, that present participle, not having spoken, but speaking in the Scriptures. And so in that sense, it's a great comfort to know that God still speaks to us, He still addresses us by the power of his spirit, as he did in days of old, but he does so through the word, which means that somebody can't claim something that's contradictory to God's word and say, well, I got a message from God. No, here is his word. Moreover, I don't have to go wandering around looking, hopefully, to find somebody who's specially enlightened or somebody who has some sort of unique access to God that I don't have. I just have to go to a church that exhibits one of the three marks of the church, the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments and discipline, and sit under the preaching of the word of God and hear it proclaimed and prayerfully approach God in the power of the Spirit by faith, and I can receive his word and his guidance and his counsel, his conviction of sin, you know, his guidance for the Christian life, and even the power of the gospel itself that will bring about my transformation unto his image. So, you're not a deist. Absolutely not. (laughs) But sometimes that accusation is made that the Reformed chased away the Holy Spirit and uh, sort of operate as if he was not. And that's simply not the case, which gets back to the whole problem of comparing two very different paradigms. And so what we're doing, I think, is asking the listener to evaluate the Reformed paradigm on its own merits. Mm -hmm. Is what we're saying biblical? Is it true? Is it faithful to the historic Christian faith summarized in the confessions and the 
universal Christian Catholic creeds. Mm -hmm. What about Arminianism and the Holy Spirit and how the Reformed responded uh, to the Arminian crisis? What was it that the Arminians were saying that caused the Reformed to articulate a particular view of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, at least in classical Arminianism, that is, as it comes from Jacob Arminius himself, there was more of an intellectualizing tendency concerning the doctrine of faith, that coming to a right understanding of the faith is primarily intellectual, whereas historically the Reformed have affirmed the idea that, yes, there is an intellectual element, but that it's not primarily intellectual, but rather it is fiduciary or it involves an element of trust. So it's not merely the assent to certain propositions, but rather it is understood understanding certain propositions and then trusting, believing, accepting those propositions. In the language of Westminster Confession of Faith on chapter 14 of Saving Faith, it's receiving, resting, and accepting in the promises of the gospel and resting in Christ's work. So that means that that trust element is only something that can come by a sovereign work of the Spirit. It's not simply just figuring things out because, you know, there's that problem, well, what happens if I'm not as smart as the next guy? What happens if I'm a little bit dull or slower on the uptake, is it merely simply affirming a series of intellectual propositions? And the answer is, is no. It's not to divorce the intellectual element that we have to consider, i.e. if I say Jesus is Lord, well, that is an intellectual proposition. It has a certain way that it has to be understood. You can't mean that Jesus is the only way of salvation and at the same time mean that there are other ways of being saved. But the only way that I'll accept that message, trust that message, is through the work of the Spirit. And on that count, I think that we could bring up, for example, something from the Westminster Confession of Faith, where it talks about the necessary inward illumination of the Spirit. It says in chapter 1, paragraph 6, that we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So that apart from the Spirit, in contrast to at least classic Arminian expressions, is that we can't understand understand these things ultimately we can't embrace them in a saving way what does god's word teach about the person and work of the holy spirit did he first appear at pentecost who is he and what is he doing now in 381 the church confessed that god the spirit is lord and giver of life who is properly worshiped and glorified who inspired god's inerrant word Join the faculty for our annual conference, January 15 and 16, 2016. The Holy Spirit, Lord and Giver of Life, featuring W. Robert Godfrey, Mike Horton, and others as we consider the person and work of the Spirit in our salvation and the Christian life. For more information, go to wscal.edu slash conference 2016 or call 888-480-8474. That's Friday and Saturday, January 15 and 16 on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California. wscal.edu slash conference 2016, 888-480-8474. We're talking to John Fesco. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit as described and confessed in the Reformed Confessions. So when we talk about sovereign grace, we're talking really about the sovereign grace of the Holy Spirit who raises us from the dead spiritually, who gives us faith and through faith unites us to Christ and who illumines the scriptures for us. Yes. So we're really totally dependent on the person and work of the Holy Spirit for our coming to faith, our coming to new life, and for our perseverance. Yeah. Right? One of the things that the Arminians said is that, well, you know, once you've come to faith, you can fall away. You can resist. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, 
wait a minute, that doesn't account for the nature of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. No, that's absolutely right. In the end, we're upheld by God's grace and not by our efforts, because if it is our efforts, then in my mind, it's some sort of alchemy where we're seeking to combine God's grace with our good works, hoping to produce the gold of salvation. Very simply, Ephesians 2, 8 and following, that we're saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. So I think in that respect, there are some significant differences, and I think I'd want to draw out the fact, maybe it's not as well known in the broader world out there as much as it is here on campus, but you know, in our curriculum, we have a course called the Holy Spirit. And I think some students go into that course thinking it's going to be one thing. And then they come out of that course thinking, oh, wow, that wasn't what I expected. And we call it the Holy Spirit, but it's ultimately the doctrine of soteriology or all of the elements of salvation. We call it that because ultimately the application of salvation, as you said, our perseverance and our sanctification and our effectual calling and all those things is the work of the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, when we are talking about soteriology or salvation, we're talking about the work of the Spirit. Let's go back to Scripture for just a minute, and then we'll move on and talk about assurance. One of the more marvelous places in the Westminster Standards is the language about the Scriptures, where it says in one six, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or or traditions of men. When we talk about the Holy Scriptures, we're talking about something that was given by the Spirit, and therefore we don't need additional revelations. Why is this doctrine, Westminster Confession 1-6, so liberating for the Christian? I think it's liberating because we don't have to worry about what might be next. We don't have to worry about, is something going to change. We don't have to worry about constantly seeking new information, you know, looking for something that we haven't yet heard. These days, we live in an age where new is better, typically. And yet, you know, we can say that the scriptures are never old. Yes, they were inspired years and ages ago, but because it's the Spirit speaking in them, they're constantly relevant. They're constantly God's divinely revealed message unto us, unto his people. So I think in that sense, it's very liberating. And if someone comes to you and says, well, the Holy Spirit told me, Mm -hmm. dot, 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 you can say to them, I have in my hands, on my phone, on my iPad, on my computer, (laughs) on my shelf, in my car, I have the revealed will of God. Mm -hmm. And you're entitled to your opinion, but you can't bind my conscience on the basis of some alleged revelation from the Spirit. No, absolutely. I think that that's one of the other implications that I think a lot of people don't realize, and it's good that you bring it up, is that they seek revelation from other people. I think it's well-intended, and they're wanting to help people, etc. But if God actually has spoken to somebody, then it's not merely binding for that individual, but rather it's universally binding for us all, so that if somebody says that we have to wear a certain color clothing, if God actually said it, well, then we all have to do it. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, who is it that's actually wielding this authority and power in the church? Is it a genuine message from God? It's the prophet, right? Right. Exactly. And so here we're back to Joseph Smith mm-hmm. and we're back to Muhammad, right? Yes. And we're back to the Holy See in Rome saying, mm-hmm. listen, whatever we said in the past, this is what God is saying now. Right. And so you're constantly enslaved to the next revelation. Absolutely. And at least in Rome, it's you have to eat fish on Fridays. Well, what if I don't want to? <laughs> what if I want to eat steak? <laughs> 
And we went through that in the 16th century, right? We actually did rebel on those things. All right. The Holy Spirit is also actively working in our lives as Christians. And one of the chief places where we feel this is in the doctrine of assurance. One of the first things that the Heidelberg Catechism says is that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, granting us comfort that we belong to Christ, Mm -hmm. that he has redeemed us with his precious blood, fully satisfied for all our sins, redeemed us from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from our head. Wherefore, it goes on to say, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Mm. How does the Holy Spirit assure us of eternal life? And is it a second blessing? Is it the case that some people have it and other people don't? And just wait and pray and maybe you'll get it. I think that it's just to take one quick step back to say that one is that as the Father pours out the Spirit on the Son, we see this in his baptism at the Jordan, then Christ accomplishes the work and according to Acts 2, in turn, pours out the Spirit upon the church. And the way that Paul describes this is in uh, 2 Corinthians one twenty-two. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's this idea that God says, let me assure you of your salvation, of my benevolence towards you, of my grace towards you, and that I will give you my spirit as a down payment, as it were, as a deposit, as a promise, so that you know that I will bring these things to pass, so that it's not like Christ says, all right, I've got to go now. Good luck. I hope you make it through on the other side. But rather, as he you know, told his disciples, at least quite prominently in John's gospel, I'll send the comforter. I'll send the spirit who will comfort you, who will teach you, who will remind you of the things that I have said, who will assure you of these things so that we have the very spirit of God testifying in our hearts through his indwelling presence with his word. So it's not somehow distinct or different from his word in terms of saying a different message, but rather in concert with the word, assuring us of these things so that when we're seeking comfort, we can turn to his word and have the spirit testify in our hearts that we belong to Christ and Christ has saved us from our sin. So every believer should have confidence that the Mm -hmm. promises given by the Spirit are his, Mm -hmm. and the Spirit is presently testifying to him and in him that indeed he does belong to Christ. It's not a second blessing. Right. Every believer has access through the Spirit, not only by virtue of the Spirit's presence in the believer, the testimony of the Spirit through the Word, but also the Spirit's intercessory work in prayer. It doesn't say that when some of you pray— but rather it's because Christ has given to us all the Spirit and we can all approach Christ in prayer in the heavenly holy of holies and bring every one of our cares and concerns before the throne of grace and in that way be assured that we have a benevolent heavenly Father and not a wrathful judge. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So sometimes in our experience, we don't feel it always fully that we belong. And and there may be times when we feel Mm -hmm. distant from God or we feel that he's distant from us. But the promise is the promise and the witness of the spirit is the witness of the spirit. And the believer can always go back to that, rest in that and trust in that. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. 
Westminster Shorter Catechism 30 Mm -hmm. asks, how does the Holy Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer is, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Now, I know you know something about union with Christ. Maybe. (laughs) You've done a little writing on this. Right. How is the Holy Spirit and why is the Holy Spirit so essential and, if I may say, central to this notion of union with Christ? And how does that work? I think that at least in terms of the way Paul says it, and going back to this information that I mentioned before, it's that God anoints the Son, and then in turn, the Son anoints the church. And in pouring out the Spirit, the Spirit is the agent, if you will, the agent of redemption or the application of redemption so that the Spirit vivifies us, to use the older language, and thereby in that moment of vivification unites us to Christ. I don't know if this may be slightly imprecise, but the Spirit is the cement, if you will, that holds us together to Christ and gives us faith by which we can lay hold of the promises of the gospel and receive the imputed righteousness and satisfaction of Christ. Calvin uses the image of a vine or a mm-hmm. bond. Mm-hmm. The Latin term is the winculum. Mm-hmm. It's hard to translate that into English, but it's as if Christ is bodily at the right hand, mm-hmm. and here we are, mm-hmm. and yet we're connected to him yeah. by the Holy Spirit, right. which is, they used to say, a mystical yeah. doctrine. Right. It's a mysterious doctrine, right. which goes to this very notion that, well, you Reformed people are cold and dead mm-hmm. and overly intellectual, <laughs> right. and you want to put God in a box, and you don't have any place for vital experience experience or mystery. And here we are talking about the mystery of our union and ongoing communion, which we sometimes forget to say, right? Union and communion with the living Christ, which is deeply reflected in our view of the sacraments. Absolutely. Yeah. What is the Holy Spirit doing when the believer is receiving and eating the sacraments? I think that the way to look at the sacraments, in one sense, uh, among other ideas, is the visible preaching of God's Word, so that in concert with the preaching of the Word of God, the Spirit then preaches, if you will, the gospel to the rest of our senses. But as we partake of the sacraments, whether it's in terms of our baptism upon our entrance into the church, or in terms of the repeated use of the Lord's Supper, the Spirit is uniting us, not simply to the divinity of Christ, but the whole person of Christ, so that we enter into this bond, this fellowship, or this communion, as you said, through the bond of the Spirit, so that apart from the Spirit, we would really essentially have no means of being bound to Christ. Can we say that when believers eat the bread and the wine, that by faith, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, they are being fed on, as the Belgic Confession says, the proper and natural body and blood of Christ? Yeah, I think so, in the sense that it's obviously mystical. I think there's that famous statement in Calvin's Institutes where he says, if you ask me to explain how this occurs, I'd rather say I can't much explain it, but rather experience it, which is not not a statement that you would anticipate coming from supposedly the very logical Calvin. Doesn't sound like the cold, spiritually dead, rationalist guy that's often presented to us. It's not that he didn't have mystery. It's where he located the mystery in the Trinity, in the Supper, and in the freedom of the Holy Spirit to give faith to whom he wants when he wants. 
Yes, no, absolutely. So, yeah, in that respect, we benefit and feed upon the whole Christ, not just simply one particular aspect of him. In other words, the God-man is our Redeemer, and if it's the God-man who is our Redeemer, then it is the God-man with whom we are in fellowship and communion through the bond of the Spirit, and especially so through the sacrament of the Supper. And it's the Spirit that is making this happen. That's right, absolutely, yeah. One last thing. Sure. Why and how is the Holy Spirit so essential to our Christian life? One of my favorite expressions is from Walter Marshall, who wrote a book called The Gospel Mystery Mm -hmm. of Sanctification. Mm -hmm. How is sanctification a gospel mystery, and what's the role of the Holy Spirit in that process of sanctification? The way that I like to describe it is that often people think that the gospel— is for getting in or getting initially saved. And then from there, it's up to me to do the rest. And the way I like to put some more formal ideas to that is that they have a reformed doctrine, if you will, of conversion. But when it comes to sanctification, they have more of an Arminian understanding of it and that it's kind of, it's up to me, it's my job. I certainly don't want to downplay the importance of striving and making great effort in our sanctification. But the gospel is not only for getting in, but through the entire process for the entirety of my life and our lives. We need the gospel every single moment, not just for that entry point. And it's the power of the Spirit that undergirds and makes effectual unto our sanctification that further growth. It's the Spirit that makes the gospel effective in our lives in that respect. So apart from the Spirit working through the means of grace, we will really flounder in our sanctification. And so in the end, it's not ultimately up to us alone in and of ourselves to somehow improve ourselves, but rather it's us as we rest in Christ. I think to me, some of the uh, more helpful words, and this is something that I think that a lot of people don't necessarily recognize, or at least see that it's here in the confession, is that in chapter 14, paragraph 2 on saving faith, talking about saving faith, it says that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, and then it says sanctification as well. Say that again. Yeah, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. So in other words, it's resting, receiving, and accepting is just as vital to justification as it is to sanctification. So there's a sense in which we can say that sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That doesn't mean that we don't care about good works, but rather we rest in Christ and in our union with him for our sanctification, which is empowered by the Spirit. We care about good works. Absolutely. Precisely because... The Holy Spirit has given us new life because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, because we're in union and communion with Christ, because he cares about them. Mm -hmm. He has made us to care about them. Correct. Shorter Catechism 35. I think I might have said finally before, but this really is finally. (laughs) That's right. uh, Because this dovetails very nicely with what you were saying. Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is sanctification? And the answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Who's doing that in us? The Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.